0: Hello, and welcome back to Code Convos with your host, Mark Abraham. Uh, today on the podcast, we have my good friend and very smart programmer, Kendall Motes. Um, I've known Kendall for a little while since he moved to St. George a few years ago and been very impressed with all of his work. And uh, just thank you for coming on the podcast, Kendall. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for Thanks for having me. So, to get started, can I ask you, Kendall, how you originally became interested in programming?
1: Yeah, so, um, yeah, I'll just, like, introduce myself, uh, how it got started and why I like it so much. But, so I'm from Idaho, like, I wasn't really around very many computer scientists. Like, my ancestors are, like, straight up just potato farmers, most of them, right? (laughs) They're really sharp people, but, like, computers were not not in our realm. Didn't really know very much about it, and I didn't even know what a computer engineer, like, a software engineer was prior to going to college. But I I I went to college and as most people like I feel like most college kids don't really have a great plan of what they want to be right away. Uh, But I went to community college for my first two years and I was just playing baseball. So that was my main like straight out of high school. I just wanted to play professional baseball and whatever path that was. uh, That's like that was my dream when I was younger. And at BYU, I think my priorities kind of changed a little bit. Uh, and I was just really trying to figure out like, that, that hard question that many college kids have, right? Like, what, what do I want to spend the rest of my life doing? And I had a, a really cool uncle in, in my family I, I married into. Uh, shout out Chris. He's, he's great. But I asked him, because he's like a really cool guy. He's a really successful, successful business guy. But I was just kind of like, hey, what would you, if you had to start all over, all over again and go back to college, what degree would you get? What would you study? What would you try and do? And he just gave me a clear-cut answer he's like 100 percent i would only study computer science which is really interesting because uh my uncle chris he was an econ major he got an mba from stanford and he was working for like bain capital and investment banking and stuff like that right um so much different path than computer science and so it was just really kind of shocking for him to say like oh i would not because he's, he's so successful right but he 100 percent was just like no i would never do that ever again i would only do computer science so I heard that, and I was like, ah, I better give it, a, give it a fair shake. But, like, I don't know if it was, like, my heritage or, like, being from Idaho and having no exposure to that, but I saw those computer science kids, and I was like, ah, oh, there's no way I would ever fit into that group. Uh, but then here I am. So, anyways, I took my first CS class, like, CS 142 at BYU. And, like, the first week I was hooked. Like, it was far better than any other class that I'd taken, like, ever in school that I ever remember. Um, way more enjoyable. I feel like it was applicable skills that I was learning and so that's kind of how I got started and got going but then I quickly realized that that was like such a good fit for me and my skill set. Generically speaking like from my own perspective about myself like not like the most I don't have like a great recollection of memory like history events. I struggled with history. I didn't really like writing. It was so painful to write papers but doing math and science was like okay. But when I paired like the math and science with like computers, where it could be applicable, that's where I really started to really started to enjoy it. On one side, like everything you and I are doing on a database basis is a uh, like all abstract like thinking, right? Mm-hmm. We have like nodes or commands we're running back and forth from like this database to this like application of code, and it's all abstract. But um, yeah, I guess like like theoretical I, sciences, like do you remember taking like computer theory or computer programming? <laughs> Yeah, like discrete mathematics and stuff, studying that mm-hmm. in, in, in my CS program, I did not enjoy that much. What else, like your empty complete stuff, I thought it was like cool to learn for a week, but I didn't want to like spend any more time talking about like the theoretical limits of our computing, our <laughs> CPUs, right, that stuff is not enjoyable for me, but uh-huh. figuring out a way to like take a problem in the real world and shove a computer uh, program to try and solve it faster than a human can or cheaper than a human can, I find a lot of value in that. Uh, for sure. A lot of enjoyment in that.
0: Gotcha. OK, cool. Um, nice. Thank, yeah, thank you for letting us know Yeah. just, like, you know, where you come from and what you're interested in. Uh, would you mind letting us know, like, where you work at right now and kind of what your title is and, like, what you do there?
1: Yep. So, I've been working for about, I should have thought this before, but probably, like, five, six years. I don't remember the exact date. Yeah, so I graduated from BYU 2018 and uh, started a company called Solution Reach after that. It was, like, a dental software company. I was like an associate engineer there. I got promoted to mid-level engineer uh, there. Then I quickly jumped ship to a company called ReliaQuest. Mm -hmm. It was like the cybersecurity space, cool company. It's doing well. And then now I'm at a company in Saint George called Zonos, and I really like where I'm at right now. I'm a staff engineer. I'm in charge of a couple of our new. uh, Like we're we're right now, currently, like we're redesigning our system. converting it from REST APIs to some GraphQL APIs, trying to make things more robust, easier for customers to connect to, and make things
0: faster. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where I'm at right now. Nice. Can you talk a little bit about what Zonus does like as a company?
1: The, like the motto of our company is to decode cross-borders or uh, make it easier for companies to work uh, across uh, country lines. And so we have a couple of products that help help out our customers. Uh, I'll just keep, a, we have lots of stuff going on, but I'll just try and keep it to the to the primary things. So there's a thing called a harmonized code, and most people in the world don't have any idea what a harmonized code is, but it's what classifies an object or like an e-commerce product, uh, or any co- product, not just e-commerce, but uh, let's say you're, you're sending like a pen across the border. Uh, a pen what might have an HS code of like, one one three four. I'm making this up. Five six, right? Uh, but there's like each chapters and like there's like components to that. That uh, like f- two to f- to 14, 13 digit HS code. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's say like the the first six digits were like the code for a pen. Like the the next two digits for like the seventh and eighth spot might dictate, like, oh, this pen is blue, or this pen is camouflage. Hmm. And so it's a way to, like, classify goods um, when they're going across the border, which is important when it comes to, like, how much taxes or how much tariffs are, are applicable. And sometimes even restrictions, like, for, for Barbados specifically, um, if you send a pen, that's totally fine. But in Barbados, this might have changed, so, like, don't hold me to it, but for a while, and I'm pretty sure still today, If you send a pen that's camouflaged, that is not acceptable. And so having like those like HS code breakdowns is very important for like how much to tax them, if the good can or cannot go through the border. Right. Hmm. So we have a a product that classifies objects. We have like a neural network. uh, And I think we also use some of the open AI API calls to try and classify objects on the fly. Like we'll take in images, we'll take in product descriptions, product titles. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe some weight and dimensions, like any information we can get from like what a user would potentially see, let's say on like an Amazon page. Mm -hmm. And then we try and classify and give the right HS code for objects, right? So that's a big part of our business. Um, Got some sharp engineers on that project. We also have like a landed cost API, which uh, I love the wording on that. I think our, our marketing team or our product team did a great job marketing this API. But basically you can send us like how much... You can set us the information about the item. We'll try and classify it on the fly, get the right HS code. You'll pass us like the shipping costs, or we can calculate shipping costs for you. And then we'll go look at duties and taxes and fees. And we'll try and aggregate all those things together and then give the end user, like, oh, for you to get this package, uh, it's going to cost you this much to land it, landed costs, right? Hmm. Uh, on the other side. So that's a, a big product of ours.
0: That's awesome. That's like a really cool niche that. Uh... Clint Reed is the founder, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's the one who started the company and that's just a really cool niche that he found and expanded on really quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I really like Clint. He's a pretty sharp guy. got a lot of respect for him. He's a good dude and he's got a cool plan. Like there's so many, uh, pain points in like global trade that can be automated with software. To be fair, a lot of it needs significant resources and capital to like solve these problems in a sufficient enough way. Um, but there's also so many inefficiencies. So, again, this is probably dated information, but uh, I've been told that when we classify objects right now with our, with our AI models, we're like, uh, depending on which category, but I think across the board we're like 80% accurate, like 84 85% accurate. I think lots of times we can be like 90% accurate with our current APIs. Mm-hmm. But uh, like the border agents that are taking in a bunch of packages each day, like let's say the U.S. border, they're like 52 percent accurate on their hs code like when, wow. they, when they give it a stamp or write in the form they're yeah. like 52 percent accurate of the t- percent of the time right like just ridiculously low barrier um but anyways there's so many inefficiencies in global trade but clint's doing a good job of like navigating where we can add the most value with the least amount of capital possible as possible
0: that sounds great yeah Zona is a really cool developing company in st george and you're nothing but good stuff from from them every time I talk to a, an employee. Sweet. So just, again, kind of along that. So at Zonos, you kind of have the role of a staff engineer and you work pretty heavily on the back end, right? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Can you talk about some of like the programming languages and tools that you use? Or
1: Yeah, totally. So um, I just love Java. Like I'm just a Java <laughs> fanboy. Nice. Um, it's probably like there's pros and cons to Java, there's pros and cons to all languages. But I think for enterprise software it's just so hard to beat it's just so good it's got a great community it's fast it's optimized it's very flexible again like the community is amazing i feel like there's so many there's a library for everything um and then it also has a great way to like it's just great for managing code for long durations of time like over decades so i just we, we love java there um so we primarily write in java like most of our apis written in java like i mentioned before we have that OpenAI and some neural networks to try and classify things. And we use ML on a few other places. So we have Python. Like I feel like machine learning and Python are synonymous today, right? Yeah. Think of our databases. We have like some relational databases like a My, MySQL, Postgres. Uh, we have last search for certain scenarios. So our legacy systems, like I mentioned before, are written in REST. And they're great APIs. Uh, our new APIs that we're trying to rewrite everything in is in GraphQL. I think we're going to do a deeper dive into that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're pretty big fans of GraphQL as well. Um, but that's our, our technology stack. My experience mostly is writing Java code. Um, I, yeah, I've just written like enterprise level Java code my entire career. That's just all I've done. Um, and yeah, that's, that's like the probably the best uh, description of where I'm at and where our company's at right now.
0: Nice. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. While I was working at Vasion, um, probably a year and a half ago or two years ago, I became pretty good friends with Kendall through playing basketball and just (laughs) seeing him on the Zonuts daily walks. Um, But we started talking quite a bit because Kendall had kind of, if I understand correctly, had kind of started a movement at Zonos of implementing GraphQL. And at Vasion, we had actually considered this at one point, but Decided not to go with it, but uh, Kendall was always really excited about just all of the things that it could do, and um, I think he became proficient pretty quickly. And so I wanted to want to quiz him a little bit on some of you know what is GraphQL, how does it differentiate between existing database systems, and like what what are its advantages slash uh, disadvantages? If you wouldn't mind mm-hmm. sharing some of that, yeah. So I think it's fair to talk about like
1: the. I, like there's some legacy uh protocols like soap or whatever it is struts in, in the java world but i feel like feel like today there's mostly like three three protocols for uh internet communication like api whatever but you have you have the rest apis which are the most common they're very good very solid there's graphql and then there's like the uh, I, I always default to grpc but remote procedures or uh yeah, Google, Google remote procedures are a great way, like protobuffers. I'm um, talking about those three things uh, when comparing them and understanding like the pros and cons and when to use them and when they would potentially hurt you. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so to start off, like REST is great, like typical REST APIs. One thing that is frustrating for me with them is I feel like the protocol is not super sound. Um, everybody has their own naming conventions or different patterns and, and uh, ways of doing them. So that's like a big frustration for me is because I feel like uh, it's an ambiguous state of the patterns you're supposed to follow um, But I can't deny that it's the most common way to do communication amongst servers. It is uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if like a, like 90% of all communication on the internet is done by rest I don't know what what the actual percentage is, but probably the majority of communication is that um, one thing that's really nice about REST is probably because it's so common, it's been around for a while. There's great tools for caching and for integrating services with, with uh, REST APIs, but REST is great. Um, one thing, it's kind of like a, a non-structured, right? All the API community back and forth is usually done like with the JSON payload mm-hmm. or like some string or non-defined structure. So sometimes it can be frustrating too to like get a response back where you're expecting this value to not be null, or you're expecting certain data to be there, or the data type has changed. And so that's like also a minor frustration. So I I would say for REST, like the pros are like super, super uh, common, easiest way to gain adoption for, if you have a customer facing API like Zonos does, it's it's like a huge important thing to have uh, the ability for customers to like understand the technology you're offering Mm -hmm. and be able to connect to it. So REST is a great option for that. one other thing that's like a hit on it in contrast to the later two is like the speed is not as optimal. Mm. Like the serialization for, of your entire object can get expensive um, going back and forth. If you're just sending small payloads back and forth, not a big deal. REST is still just great, it's highly performant. But if you're getting into like larger pace, pace, uh, payloads and larger sizes of, of throughput, um, it might be advantageous to look for other options. So that's uh, the, my spiel on REST. So then going to GraphQL. So GraphQL. Um, I love it. I just love it so much. It just makes sense so much sense to my mind. Uh, but for GraphQL, typically you have like one URL. Mm-hmm. Where REST, you have like many, right? So if you have your base URL plus like your slash, I don't know. If you're creating like an items API, you have a slash items, and you'll have like a get and a post and a delete and a upsert or update or whatever you want, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the naming convention and URLs and paths, uh, just gets like more cumbersome. And so that's one thing I love about GraphQL. It's usually just like your base URL slash GraphQL. That's your one endpoint that your server serves or like supports. And then you just send like different JSON payloads for whatever uh, API call or whatever object you're trying to interact with. Um, So I like that because it's like simple. Um, One thing that can cause uh, some frustration is like very commonly in like your your browsers or your API calls, uh, with like get calls and rest, you know, rest is like commonly use, use a get to fetch data. Mm -hmm. So there's some organic caching. That's super nice. Your browsers will do some organic caching. Your servers can do organic caching and caching is really well understood with those gets. Um, so that was like one knock on GraphQL, your gets, uh, can be frustrating in GraphQL. It's always a post to that one URL. you never Mm -hmm. do gets. Mm -hmm. Um, so that can be a frustrating pain point, but, um, to be honest, I'll talk about it later. But um, the newer technologies with GraphQL, you can turn any of your GraphQL queries into a GET and get the same caching. Hmm. And then caching is also being solved in other ways. But a common this uh, a common debate between rest, uh, REST, and GraphQL is caching is more problematic or more difficult. And like yes, slightly true that it's like negligibly more complicated. But with today's like super graphs or uh, GraphQL, like later technologies or more recent te- technologies. A lot of those problems are solved in like very easy ways. Um, what else? So GraphQL, like you, you define a strict contract or a schema, mm-hmm. much like you would with like, a Postgres database or MySQL database, and it's really powerful because you can define like what your data types are gonna be, you can define your object structure, uh, and you can also define like which types are being uh, returned for each each uh, string, or excuse me, for each field. Like you can say this field's gonna return a string, you can return this one's gonna be return an integer, or you can create your own custom um, uh, scalers to support whatever, um, type of field you want to return. Very commonly you would have an ID on the, the item. You might have like a created at or updated at, and you might have like, uh, a description. Well, very, like most systems, you can guarantee that there's going to be an ID for an item. So you can put like an exclamation point after the item ID. Mm -hmm. You can put an exclamation point after like the updated at or created at timestamps. And that's nice because the, the end user knows that, like, this contract is, like, strictly saying that I'm going to get this type from this field. Mm-hmm. And I know if it's going to be nullable or if it's going to be, like, a guaranteed non-null field. And so it's something that's also really nice with GraphQL. Um, and then, as I mentioned before with REST, sometimes the payload size can get difficult. Um, a big reason why well, GraphQL is created by Facebook. And you can imagine, like, their graphs or, like, their d- user data is pretty exhaustive, like, lots of data, lots of payload size, and they're having network latency because the payloads are getting so big. And so very commonly in your UIs or your clients or your mobile apps, whatever, you might just need like a portion, like the user's name, first name and last name and data birth or something, right? You don't need all the entire, like the entire uh, data set for that, for that user. Mm -hmm. So GraphQL is nice because you have to explicitly say and ask for which fields you want in response. Uh, And that's great because um, very commonly, like you can reduce joins in your database. If like your nested objects are doing a join in your Postgres database, or they need to go to some external data source, you can save uh, compute or time joining those tables or doing things like that because GraphQL knows, oh, this user only wants like the first name and last name of this user. I don't need to go query for all of its friends, all of this user's friends on this uh, this, uh, API call. Uh, And then also like the serialization and like, sending bytes across the network can be reduced because you're asking for less data, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I really like that about GraphQL. Okay, so then I'll just briefly wrap up with like a gRPC. So gRPC is pretty awesome. Um, You just can just compress and send so much more data across the wire in a faster way. There are like trade-offs and everybody's environment is different but if you're sending like a small payload gRPC can actually become more costly for you because like the the compute to, like, serialize it and get things ready to go to send over the wire can be more expensive than actually just sending, like, a REST JSON. Mm -hmm. But if your compute size is, or your payload size is getting, like, medium or, like, very large, gRPC can be really beneficial because uh, it can just, like, compress and serialize and know exactly how to, like, extract that object on the other side. Hmm. Like, the server can bundle it up in a special way that's optimized, and the client knows how that's going to be bundled. And the client will receive, like, the request and be able to expand it out faster than, uh, than... um graphql or rest um, but one thing that with that is like the client has to know the library or has to know like the objects and entities that it can potentially be sent over the wire with grpc and so uh, that's one thing it like it takes an additional work to set up those clients on both sides uh usually it's done like server side like server, server 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 communication rarely is it done i feel like it shouldn't be done for the most part between like a browser and a server i i think it's been done before and i've seen it before it's a lot of work, but uh, yeah, it's kind of like those three pros and cons. But I feel like GraphQL is happily in the middle where you can get significant speed up and performance boosts. And then you also have like strong strict contracts that you have to adhere to. And so it's just a great uh, experience for users to, to connect to those GraphQL servers and uh, know exactly like what field fields are available, what queries and operations are available and uh, stuff like that. So yeah, huge fan of GraphQL.
0: Nice. <clears throat> that was a super great and very thorough breakdown of those different areas because it helps give a really good picture of what exists out there and what are the pros and cons of each. I've never, I, I love that you fl- framed it like that just because <laughs> sometimes as programmers, probably just because of the programming language debate, we kind of get drawn into biases sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the truth is, well, at least from what I've seen, there's only trade-offs, not Usually only trade-offs, not this is better or worse for mm-hmm. every given situation, right? So, and kind of with that in mind, so why did you guys decide to implement GraphQL at Zonos? What was the big benefit that you saw there?
1: Yeah, good question. So a little bit of like in, uh, context for setup and understanding is um, my previous company, has was at Relyquest, was with some like really awesome engineers that I enjoyed working with, and they were just big GraphQL fans. So that was my first exposure, and so I would say that I gained like my training wheels. I had good training wheels there and gained a simple understanding of GraphQL, uh, and I was starting to like get. I started to really appreciate it. At my my end of the my experience at at, at quest and Zonos, um, smart engineers. They were like trying to evaluate where to go next. Zonos was in a state where they wanted to redo some APIs, had some tech debt, like everybody does, they wanted to get rid of. And they were curious about GraphQL. A few of the engineers, I feel like commonly like front-end engineers love GraphQL because they can have those strict contracts and know exactly where to uh, get the data. They also love it because a lot of times, instead of like going to so many different API URLs, like I discussed earlier with REST, they can just go to one, one documented, well, that's one thing too with GraphQL. It's self-documenting. If you pull up a schema, you can like see in, with these API calls and lots of tooling that's like, readily available everywhere, you can see exactly which uh, like basically APIs or operations you can do. Um, so front-end engineers just love that because they don't have to go ask the back-end engineer, like, hey, how's this uh, REST API? What's the URL? Uh, what's the object that's going to be a response? They know exactly that it's always going to be this one URL. It's going to be this object, and I can guarantee that these fields won't be null. So anyways, front engineers at Zonos were uh asking for more graphql apis so they can make their lives better and uh, we're also experiencing some pain points in our system where we had tons of reused objects uh, or excuse me duplicated objects that were not um, uniform across our system and and again like our 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 company serves apis for clients to interact with Um, We're customer-facing APIs, and so it's very important for us to have a very consistent experience throughout our whole system, right? Mm -hmm. But for example, our item object was created like five different times in like five different libraries with five different name conventions, and sometimes Mm -hmm. they had fields that lined up, but many times they didn't. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes on this API, the item object would have uh, your timestamp for the created at was created by, uh, and then, excuse me, created at, and then in other, other places it'd be named something completely different and so it was a frustrating experience very commonly we would have like hs code related uh remember the hs codes mentioned before sometimes we have hs codes related to the item or on the item object sometimes we wouldn't uh but then times that by like hundreds of objects and hundreds of different repos is not hundreds of re- different repos but tens twenties different repos and so it's just it's just a Hard thing to manage. Even our own system engineers communicating from one microservice to the other had a frustrating experience because the item object being sent wasn't matching up with the item object that that respective service knew about. Hmm. And so we were struggling with like uniform objects and uh, inconsistencies amongst our system. Another thing is with REST APIs, like I mentioned before, like we don't really know what we we had such a hard time knowing what was that what was out there. I know there's lots of tooling out there like swagger or other things to like document your race rest apis but we had so many microservices uh supporting so many features of our parts and features of our system uh that we very rarely knew exactly what apis were available and so commonly we saw engineers duplicate apis like we had an api for shipment rating quotes or for creating an item or uh doing the same thing duplicated so many times amongst APIs because a software engineer was given a task to support this function in the dashboard or to support this function for this client. And they had no way to go quickly view what was already available. And so they duplicated the work and then now we just double our tech debt with no real gain, right? Hmm. And so that's something that's great about GraphQL is it's self-documenting. So if you pull up like a schema, you can see exactly, and like I use this tool called Insomnia. And it has like a Google search basically for your graph, so you can like say, oh, if I want to like see which operations, which queries or which uh, mutations can I do uh, for for an item object, it's so easy to find and navigate and understand exactly what that uh, current operation um, supports and what it doesn't. So that was a big that was a big pain point for our, our system that we felt like GraphQL could solve. I feel like there was another one that I always brought up, but it's uh, it's kind of escaping me. But one thing I should mention too, so I didn't mention this before and I've mentioned queries mutations so much, but in REST, like a get is like a fetch, you're fetching for data, but a post is where you're updating data or saving new data to the database. And so like synonymously, like queries are like gets for, for a GraphQL and mutations are like mutating or adding data to the database or system and so uh, queries and, and mutations are like which types of API operations you can do with GraphQL um, So yeah you should have clarified that earlier. So yeah we were experienced like uh, not uniform objects on system and then we also had like just a terrible black box not knowing like what apis we had available and which ones we didn't. So those are two big big uh, pain points that we felt like we could have solved with GraphQL and it's been going pretty well so far I'm happy with it.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I I think that gives a really good summary of GraphQL, and I was I'm glad that you talked about it because there was a lot of stuff there that I didn't know <laughs> because I don't live in that world. And uh, I think it's 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 a great legitimate option for a lot of companies, and I think it provides a new layer of consistency that most uh, developers and it you know whichever role you find yourself in could probably appreciate. So mm-hmm. I think now if you're okay with it, we'll transition a little bit to a different topic. I was thinking we could talk for a second about uh, coding interviews. I know that from my time, knowing you, that we've discussed coding interviews a lot, and it's kind of just this whole big bear <laughs> that I feel like exists in the tech industry, uh, kind of separate from everything else. It's, it's kind of funny. I, I talk about this a lot, but it it definitely seems like there's your normal day-to-day job, like the stuff that you mm-hmm. do that the company needs, and then there's the the code interviewing part of your job where it's like okay i need to brush up on these skills that surprisingly not many companies use or maybe don't use on a day-to-day basis but they apparently really like software engineers to know Mm -hmm. and uh i I think a lot of them are important but it is funny that very rarely do they see the light of day in uh, in actually building stuff Uh, i was wondering though just like for maybe the listeners who don't know a ton about interviewing within the industry could you kind of break down So what is a typical software engineering interview like? Yeah. Yeah. Happy to do that. Can I just like
1: preface a little bit? Please do. Yeah, go ahead. uh, So just like going a little bit before that question. So I love being an engineer. I think it's awesome. I really enjoy like my day to day life. I feel like my work days go very fast, Uh, but like probably one of the most frustrating things for me is interviewing (laughs) companies. Like it's just like the worst part I feel like of this industry. Um, But at the same time, I understand it's so important. So being on a, a, at a company with a team of engineers nothing like few things are worse than having like a not up to par or a bad hire come onto your team that kind of ruins your team morale and your productivity and so it's it's like a two-edged sword right uh interviewing is the worst and it's very exhaustive for both the company and the candidate uh but it's so important to have a good hiring flow and be commanding that to make sure that your talent coming in Is going to be like a net positive for your company because, like, so quickly and way too often is it a net negative when you're spending money and resources trying to like add to the company and it ends up being like a huge negative. So, such a hard, tricky thing. Um, The CEO of Netflix, I think it's like Reed Hastings. Hastings. Yes, thank you. Uh, I remember reading an article that he talked about where um, you have like your you're non-creative and creative. He kind of broke it down into two categories of types of workers. Like um, he gave an example of like an ice cream scooper and then uh, you're, uh, in contrast the software engineer or a creative. Like the best ice cream scooper compared to the average ice cream scooper could like scoop twice the ice cream scoops that the normal one could, right? Mm-hmm. And so if that's like true, uh, that means that like for a company to operate efficiently, they could potentially have like a discrepancy between The average ice cream scooper and the very best of like maybe twice the compensation, right? And so it's hard for like the the company or the CEO to justify saying, oh, I can pay this ice cream, our very best ice cream scooper five times more than the average, right? He's so experienced. You can see like the math just doesn't work out. Um, But for some of these like more creative type uh, jobs, that becomes uh, a much more elastic number where the very best have magnitudes more of impact on your company than the average so when he was starting out he had the he had limited funds as everybody does limited resources and he's trying to figure out the best way to like hire the best talent whether it's like one engineer or many Um, and when he did his research he felt like um, the best engineers were 100x more performance than the average so like the elasticity becomes a lot bigger right so your potential pay scale for the very best becomes a lot more elastic he stayed true to his guns and instead of he had like enough money to hire like 25 solid engineers or like pretty much middle of the pack or he could hire like one or two just like elite coders and what did he do he decided to hire the one elite coder at the beginning and then he slowly added more and more um, and it's paid out really well for them like i love the tech blogs that i read from netflix it seems like they're doing great things i stream from netflix all the time and their code and their software and like their products are really sharp and like go at massive scale and it seems to be the right choice for them i'm not sure it's true for everybody like if you have a very simple uh system that just needs to be done a very basic way for like a small number of customers it's probably not the very best thing to buy like that elite google engineer and pay him like two million a year or whatever it is but if you're trying to like solve hard problems or do things that uh very commonly like most people can't then it probably doesn't make sense to go and pay more for fewer engineers than the opposite. Um, And very commonly in our industry, I feel like the winner takes all. Like we see so much that uh, the best product out there gets 80% of all the users, 80% of all the profit, or 80% of the remaining companies are fighting for like the 20% of the potential profit, right? So it's so important, especially for engineering, um, to, like, get the very best talent because they do just scale so much more. And I, I imagine if you, like, Mark, if you think, like, of your experiences with teams uh, over the, like, the two companies you've been at, like, you've probably seen that, right? Like, some engineers, are they just get it. They have ambition. They have, they're autodidactic. They can figure out things so quickly. Um, and they're worth so much more money. But the company doesn't justify, like, paying them 5, 10, 10x more than the average. It's just not, like, how, like, business heads or, like, MBAs or accountants work, Right. Uh, both engineering, it's like, I think engineers
0: can see those value adds or value uh, not adds. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, totally. I love that preface. That frames this whole thing perfectly. I think you highlighted so many of the issues, both from the company side and from the candidate who's interviewing side of just like, how are we going to make this work best for everyone? And yeah, what, what you talked about being like 100 times more productive than the average engineer, it's like... I'm definitely nowhere near that, and I and I want Same, yeah. <laughs> and I definitely want to, I want to get more into that later. Um, but yeah, th- that I feel like that framed the problem problem really well. With that in mind, yeah, can you give us uh, like just a little breakdown of like what your average interview for a tech company would be like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So mm-hmm. one thing to keep in mind uh, as we're going through these things is like the companies very commonly aren't looking for like an average engineer. They're not looking for like a top sixty percent, seventy percent, or percentile engineer. They're trying to like really legitimately hire the best, and they're all competing competing over a smaller talent pool, of like there might be like I don't know, you, you get the idea. They're tr- they're going for the top bracket of engineers. That's what every company is trying to go after, but um, very commonly when I've had interviews with companies, um, just from a high level, there's usually like uh, four like four different days, if you will. Like very commonly, like you'll have like a small brief interaction with the recruiter, where they're just trying to like fill you out get to see if like you're interested uh see where your strengths are to make sure like the skill sets line up very like uh preliminary like light conversations nothing too serious so and if things line up both parties want to move forward then the next thing might be like a tech screening uh very commonly i feel like engineers get just like uh uh do do it by yourself coding assessment whether it's like a project they got to do or something very common to like elite code uh, with a given time limit, um, but it's it's like a good uh, Early-on filter for the companies just to like spam out a piece of code that will not require man-hours uh, mm-hmm. Or like humans to be interacting with like, one of the candidates and then that's usually just like a pass or fail um, Like if you got the code or if you complete the code assessment within 30 minutes or an hour Then you move on to the next round if not sorry like better luck next time mm-hmm. um, then uh, this one is like optional from companies i've interviewed with very commonly um where the next round or the third uh day if you will will be like a system design or like, get to know your previous previous experience um and it's usually like an hour long uh from my experience where an, inter- an engineer from the company you're hiring at will just ask you a question about your previous experience or maybe give you like a simple like conversation type question where they want to say like a hey, design like a rate limiter for me or design like tell me about how you would design a potential like cron job scheduler for emails or like flight common you get like design twitter or design a parking garage stuff like that and they just want to they just want to like see where you're strong at see where your strengths are at see where your weaknesses are at um, they try and like challenge you or go in more de- into depth in certain aspects um Let's say you're hiring for like a database, a heavy database type position. They might drive, like drive, drive, or drill down really deep on, on like a what kind of database relationships would you use? Would you use like NoSQL here? Would you use like uh, a relational database here? How would you scale it out to like 10,000 users? How'd you scale it out to like 10 million users? How would you partition or uh, get like replicas for the database? Kind of stuff like that. So I feel like that very commonly it's like, how would you design from high-level these uh, these systems? And then they'll drill down on topics that they're interested in, or they're looking for, like, high um, uh, ability in the candidate to command, like, APIs or databases or, C- I don't know, hardware, DevOps stuff. So that's commonly what the third day is. And then... Um, usually the if you pass those three like kind of filters the final round is very commonly like a four to six six one hour block interviews that kind of do similar things to like the code assessment uh and then the system design interview but um like i'm thinking of the most recent one i had i had two coding assessments so in the i think it was a five hour five one hour blocks i had two coding assessments where it's like they're basically just leak code questions like A rate limiter was one that i've got recently design the game snake you know like the old school snake game design that um those are some of the ones i've had recently and those are interesting uh there's so much like there's such a so much debate around are leak codes like a good measuring stick to evaluate candidates um my answer is like i legitimately think it's like the best we have today it's not perfect but i think the best engineers are hiring the best talent or filtering the best talent out by leveraging leak code. So I think it's like an important thing. Um, then then after that, very commonly, you have a system design interview, which is very similar to the one I just explained before, but it's like a second round of that, like design this parking garage system. Uh, and they give you an hour, they just talk back and forth. And then uh, then the next two rounds are commonly um, a chance for you to explain like how impactful you've been on your business or your companies, um, like, how, how um, high should you be ranked in seniority? Should you be like a junior engineer? Should you be a senior? Should you be a principal? And they try to engage those things by uh, talking about your previous experience. And then the last one is commonly a core value or like uh, how well you align with the company's culture. Mm-hmm. Lots, of, lots of times, especially the fame companies, the bigger companies, they have five to 10 core values like you're scrappy or you seek to be the change you want in the world stuff like that and so your your job is to bring previous experiences that you've had in your work or professional life that lines up and shows that you've uh uh had those characteristics or core values in your work to make sure that you're not going to like ruffle feathers or cause problems with that company that your culture with uh, aligns with their culture right so those are kind of the five five uh common interviews on that final final round. And it's not easy, man. I feel like you just gotta grind so many questions. You gotta memorize the company's core values and memorize stories from your past and be able to like, pull them out in a canned way to easily and quickly present complex ideas mm-hmm. with an interviewer in less than 30 minutes most of the time, right? So those are kind of like the
0: high-level things of code interviews.
1: Nice. It might sound easy, but man, they are, they are <laughs> tough.
0: Oh. I, I definitely believe that coding interviews are some of the most stressful and high pressure situations that I've been in in my life. And I've never felt more not capable <laughs> than oh. when I'm on coding interviews. Something about just being put on the spot with like no resources and someone watching you is just pretty, yeah, not fun sometimes. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's challenging, man. Yeah, um, I remember
0: last time, my last, it was a while ago, but
1: I was coding, I think it was like that snake game or something, right? I'm trying to like, Write this code. Usually, when I'm coding, my natural habitat, if you will, is like headphones on, listening to my cheesy music, or whatever, and like not talking with anybody for hours. And that's when I get in the zone. But during these interviews, it's like a very different environment where you're having someone like continually ask you questions, and your like flow or your your focus is being interrupted and shifted all the time. So it's hard to keep track of all the yeah objects and memory and and data structures you're trying to work with, and so it's just so challenging to um, code up within 40 minutes a reasonable answer to their code assessment along with answering questions along the way with
0: a uh, person who's trying to figure out what's going on in your brain. That was a great breakdown of, of, you know, the interviewing as a whole and, yeah. So I wanted to ask you a couple quick rapid-fire questions. So, so yeah, how long would you typically, typically take to prepare for a, a coding interview? If you're, like, the the elite interviewer uh, one
1: thing you mentioned, too, is, like, before is your interview skills are so different than your day-to-day skills, yeah. and so it's a hard thing. If, you, if, you've, if you're if if you continually, like, staying, keeping up with your interview skills, it might take you less time or more time, um, but they are, like, vastly different than your day-to-day computer skills, which is a frustrating thing, but the reality we're in. But um, one thing, too, if you're, like, an elite interviewer and you're commanding, like, high salaries from, like, lots of companies, um, the people that are doing it really well, they can go on websites online, like levels.fyi or blind.com or other websites and they can usually see uh and see examples of like how long each company takes by the time it's like the first contact with the recruiter and so those that's usually a common like it's it, i don't think you have you can dictate super well the cadence or like the duration mm-hmm. of time the interview will take yeah. commonly it's going to be up to the company and also their needs like um which, which what time of the year is it is it like Q1, they just got a bunch of financial goals aligned, they now have budget? Is it end of the quarter where they're trying to like make their books look good for their stock announcements or whatever, I don't know, like whatever's going on with the business. So it's challenging because a lot of time it's up to the company, but the, the elite engineers can command like multiple companies like core values and elite code questions, and then they can go and see like, oh, Facebook takes usually like six weeks to get through. or. Google takes four. And what they do a lot of times is time it so they start each one of those interviews at the right time that they all get the, the offer within the same week. Hmm. So they can have like thir- more than three parties negotiating over that one engineer, right? So that's what the elite interviewers are doing. I'm not doing that. I'm not up to par with that. Uh, maybe one day. But um, so very commonly, it takes like a month or two um, to get through. And so that's usually what I do. Like if I get a, if I get a, a request from a recruiter from a company that I'm interested in, um, I'll use just like co- study coding problems on the weekends or in evenings, um, for that company for like that month or, or two months, uh, through the, throughout the whole, uh, whole scenario. Uh, commonly too is I'll, um, get more aggressive at the, f- the deeper I get with the company. So like mm-hmm. those last five rounds on the, that last, uh, final day of interviews, is pretty intense and they come at you from lots of different angles. So like the week before that, I'm pretty much hardcore um, focusing and studying on that
0: if I'm interested in working in the company. Gotcha. And you mentioned some resources before, like LeetCode I think was a big one and then Mm -hmm. using levels of FYI and blind as well for like research. Uh, But apart from those are there, or even including those, what resources do you lean on heavily while you're preparing for an interview? Yeah, as much as I hate it, lead code is great. Yeah. Um,
1: YouTube is awesome, too. There's so many great um, so many great YouTube channels and visuals that help. Because like we mentioned before, a lot of times we're coding abstract ideas, like abstract database structures or data structures in our code. Uh, it can be challenging to know and understand throughout the problem what's going on. But YouTube is a great way for that. Like neat code comes to mind. Lots of interviews. Uh, there's, there's some good books that you can get cracking the code interview is a really robust one it's mm-hmm. that's a hard book to get through but yeah.
0: beneficial there is there's one for system design too isn't there that's pretty popular it's nice like that to you recently yeah either you send it to me or someone else did but yeah i know there's a really popular one for system design as well and that's typically like your uh well I mean, you definitely would be doing system design questions at this point. I think one, or I don't know if you mentioned this or not, but I think usually associate to mid-level, you usually don't get hit, in my experience, with like serious system design questions. It's typically once you start reaching like senior staff principal level that they'll lean very heavily on the system design and wanna know like, okay, you're gonna be in charge of this whole product, we wanna make sure that you are fundamentally sound in designing systems, right? Yeah, totally, totally. Is like a new grad
1: or junior engineer. You might get system design interviews, but like their mm-hmm. bar of expectation is very reasonable, right? They're yeah, gonna, yeah, they're not going to be too hard on you.
0: Yeah, Kendall touched on using LeetCode like pretty heavily. That's what I use as well. And there's something really nice in leak Code where you can actually filter by company if you get the premium mm-hmm. edition. So like if you are interviewing for like a larger or maybe I mean they have a lot of like mid level or mid sized and large companies, but yeah that one's really helpful because you can see frequency like when was this question asked? Um, how often is this question asked? What difficulty is it at? Like how do people typically rank on questions like this? And so you can get a really good idea, hopefully before you even go into the interview of like, okay, I have a decent idea of how I might perform on this. And (laughs) Kendall and I have talked about this before, but honestly, just like length of time is so big in this because, uh, a lot of times you're supposed to say, I think, if you get the exact same question <laughs> that as you like you've done already on an interview. But sometimes that's also a a big blessing if you got one very similar or exactly the same, and uh, you just absolutely crush it. Like that is a that's a dream come true. But if you can start just building up these uh, success tries on leak code problems and and getting a really good track record of like, okay, hey, for this difficulty of problem, I can typically solve it in this amount of time. And or if it's related to this type of thing, like a certain data structure or maybe an algorithm that uh, you want to get specifically good at. I think getting really good time metrics of how quickly you can solve uh, problems in in those difficulties is really helpful.
1: Yep, that's good stuff.
0: Yeah, lots of people view it as
1: kind of like luck of the draw. They (laughs) they will study and command like, I feel like people can keep like 10 or 20... um, Code questions like canned in their brain. Mm-hmm. That's how lots of people do view these, these uh, coding interviews, which is sad, but the reality we're in. <laughs> and was- those are great resources that and I'm glad you kind of like explain those further because I feel like if you're not doing those things and you're trying to interview with some of those bigger companies. You're not going to be close to be on the same playing field. It's going to be like a different story for you. You're at such a disadvantage if you're not studying the actual problems that company's going to ask, right? Yeah. So
0: if you want to compete, you just got to like pony up, pay the premium subscription, and <laughs> just go after it. That, uh, and yeah, I think either on blind or on levels, you can also, like, honestly, I've noticed. The most recent questions are typically the most helpful for me. Like if I can find some a candidate who's interviewed very recently for the same position and the same level that I'm trying to interview for and they've posted the questions they were asked, those are the questions that I'll latch on to first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm like, this is what's happening currently right now at the company and I want to be as up to date as possible. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Yeah, good stuff.
1: Yeah, that system, I finally found that system design book. It's just called System Designer Interview. Imagine that. System <laughs> Designer Interview by Alex, I don't know, XU. How do you say that? I have no idea. But that one's like, I like that one the best for me personally because it's like condensed enough. It's not like this huge like 700 or 1,000 page mm-hmm. hard to swallow academia book on system design, but it just gives you a high level so you can actually like navigate um, the majority of the questions and type of flows that you should be thinking about, so yeah, it's that's a, that's a solid book.
0: For sure, yeah. Great, thank you for sharing those resources with us. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to say on the topic of interviewing before we kind of jump topics again? OK, so I think this might be like getting a little bit into the next topic, so
1: sorry if I get ahead of myself. But lots of people are asking, like LeetCode can be a, a sore subject or a painful part of the interview process for many companies and for many engineers. Um, Lots of companies don't do them, but the majority of them that I've uh, worked at have. Um, But uh, the question always comes like, oh, well with OpenAI or these AI tools, do I need to worry about leak code? Uh, Because it is true that AI can solve probably faster than any engineer and probably more problems than any engineer engineer can by just like sending it in the prompt like that question. Uh, so, it's true, like, what you're studying, like, open AI can do better than all of us, which is, is, the, is the truth. And it is true also that, because, like, what, going going a little bit further back, this is, oh, man, we're, we're, going, we're going to go deep here. I'm, I'm glad. I'm here for the tangent. So, uh, the question comes, like, do we need to leak code? Like, why do we need to learn these concepts to speed up our code, to write fast algorithms that... Use the lowest amount of memory. That's that's what like that's a big reason why we leak code is because the companies were that are hiring for engineers want to write faster code than their competitor and they want to write the code with less memory footprint or less resources so their AWS bill or the compute bill is cheaper. They want to have the best product with the cheapest amount of resources uh, possible, right? Everybody wants that, and it's especially important for the company's histories of of Google and Facebook who like set the trend of paying large salaries, doing aggressive interviews, and trying to hire, like, the best, right? But if you look at the history of, like, Facebook and and Google, it makes total sense. So Facebook was competing with Friendster. There was MySpace at the time, right? Um, But I I think it was Friendster that was dominating. They had the most um, people on the network, and they were just killing it. And so it was kind of like David versus Goliath for a minute, right? But as soon as uh, Friendster got too many users on their system, it just, like, froze all the time like their compute t- was huge their bills were expensive they couldn't keep up with the load their services were very non-responsive took forever to get any interaction done on that service and so like friendsters shot up in users was dominating the market but then hit a strict cap where their services started to diminish where facebook hired like really well zuckerberg harped on this stuff early on for my understanding and he hired like the elite coders at the time uh, and he try to spend the least on those, like, huge servers that were available at the time. But they try to find the best talent that could write the most scalable code in the, in the f- cheapest way possible, right? And so they were able to scale way past a million users where their competitors had struggles, right? And so that's why, a big reason why they had so much success, because they could just handle so many more users. So mm-hmm. from their, like, DNA, from, like, their origin, they view it as if we hire the best talent... And write the best most efficient soft optimized software we win right and they like who like they destroyed for like that longest amount of time um and then going to like a very similar thing happened with google when google was early on they were competing against like yahoo ask jeeves right in the search engine space and they're just like poor college kids that had a little bit of seed funding from uh stanford right Mm. and they were competing against Goliath that had way more money, and commonly that in that in that day and age they would buy like the biggest and best, uh, vertical vertically scaled servers, meaning that they would just buy like the coolest, newest CPU, the best RAM, the best like hard drive. Um, and Google came in and said like, oh, there's no way we could ever compete at this game. We don't have enough money to buy those tip-top, super fast processors. So what we're gonna do is buy a bunch of super cheap, small dinky little servers and scale horizontally meaning we're gonna add a bunch of smaller services and distribute the load amongst them but with that comes complexity so if you're component if you're coding on like one monolithic system it's like way easier to manage communication like distribution like you just got one place to manage mm-hmm. but with the Google in the Google world like how do you manage it like very commonly their little nerd node servers would like go down or be broke, get broken, right? Hmm. Or be unresponsive. And so they had to be more advanced coders. Oh, if this if this node goes down, how do we stay active in supporting our customers' needs, right? Um, and come to find out that was like for sure the right choice and the right game plan in their system architecture. Hmm. But that meant that they had to spend more money on engineers to hiring the best talent who were smart enough and could write fast enough code with fault-tolerancy across these more complex architectures right mm-hmm. and so it became so important for those engineers uh, for those companies to hire the best engineers those like 100x that we talked about with engineers uh which we all want to be them but hardly any of us are them but that's how they succeeded in one right um but going back to uh the leak code problem right bring you back in so uh is leak code an effective tool to measure engineering talent um Especially considering that with now AI being able to like do those problems better than most humans uh, Probably like all humans that uh, Like it becomes a valid question like is is LeetCode the best measuring tool? Uh for those things and I think the answer to my understanding is still yes like subject to change Industry is going to shift and adapt to the most competitive uh interviewing cycle to, be- to get the best talent but I don't think it's about like, oh, we need this like snake program, you're gonna code in 30 minutes to be fast. Is that snake program ever gonna make Google money? Is it ever gonna make anybody co- money? Probably not. If you can code something in 30 minutes, I feel like it'd be one million, one in a trillion chance you can make money off that application. But I think it shows a large, it's like the politically correct way to IQ test somebody in their in the, in the strengths you want to, to like, have in your candidates right and so it proves that you can like understand complex things you're willing to put diligent work into studying these uh, algorithms and these problem sets and then also uh, it is true that open ai can kill those small problems in those optimized ways using these correct data structures or design patterns but i think it's important to understand and command those things because as of today from my experience open ai can't see the huge system that your company is developing all at once and so you need to know oh if i move these databases here or like move this application here what implications do i have on the big o complexity and space space complexity of my systems which i don't think ai can do today it probably will in the future in the near future but still at the same time like it's such a like grinding leak code and understanding oh this is how dynamic programming works which is not an easy task to understand uh and and learning and proving that you can learn those things and showcase them probably means that you're going to be competitive in many aspects of this engineering space, not just this silly leak problem problems. So I don't, I don't see them going away. I think this still a valuable tool and I
0: don't see anything better coming in the next few years. I totally agree. And that's a great segue to our next topic. Uh, where we are gonna talk about artificial intelligence. And I think I think you hit it right on the head and really opened the can to a lot of the the things that I, I wanted to discuss. How am I so valuable if a machine can do my job, right? Um and I agree with you that I think software engineers are so valuable, especially ones who can understand fundament fundamentals. And I think that's a big part of like the leak code problems is like they want to understand like the large language models that are built today are built on certain principles, certain fundamentals that, like, if you understand as an engineer, like, who knows, maybe you will be the person at our company that creates the next huge distributed system that, like, competes with an LLM or whatever product, right? But it's, like, having that baseline understanding of, like, fundamentals of, like, you mentioned something like Big O and, like, complexity and, like, working in a distributed environment and fault tolerance and, like, all of these things, you know, they build up this, like, repertoire that's, like, in a word it's just complex right and I the feeling that I've got is like they just want engineers that un- understand and can handle that complexity and turn it into efficiency like really quickly mm-hmm. and yeah I, I totally agree with really everything that you said but um, I'm just curious so you kind of got the AI in the context of the interviewing I'm cur- kind of curious just like as the industry as a whole I think this is like a big question that everyone's asking right now is like, how is artificial intelligence going to affect software engineers going forward? And I'm curious to get your take on that.
1: Man, I think if anybody says like, oh, like all engineers are going to be done in five years or there's no way we're going to like be replaced. I think they have no idea. Like I legitimately don't think anybody can predict that. Like, The huge change of OpenAI was like so impactful for my life and our company. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just like, well, first of all, I never would have predicted an AI model, be able to like write code as good as it is today, right? Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not in the forefront of that space. I'm a Java engineer coding like distributed systems, right? That's my forte. And so I'm no expert for sure. But uh, I I think ultimately as long as you're like good at critical thinking and can work with people, you can add value. I think engineers have a great, the best engineers I've worked with have a great ability to like think critically and express complex ideas to people. And I think you, I think you can do that. I think you'll be able to add value for other people's companies and potentially even your companies. So at the end of the day, I keep telling myself that and other people that, that it's going to be okay if we get all of our jobs taken away from us from some robot. <laughs> uh, but I think if you do those two things, it's going to be fine. Um, one thing that I also tell myself to like allow me to sleep at night is... Uh, because, like, I'm trying to grow my family. I'm trying to have lots of kids, like, uh, support a family for decades. Uh, so I am very interested in how this is going to impact my salary, my potential job outlook, right? But another thing that I keep telling myself is if uh, if these AI companies get so good that it can replace engineers, well, what does that mean that for, for my capability to produce work or code? I'm hoping or anticipating that if the companies are reducing their need for lots of engineers in their engineering departments, then theoretically I might be able to become a more capable individual or or like small scale company to compete with these big guys, right? And we've seen that over time, going back to like the Facebook or the Google early days, commonly like eBay was killing it. They had those big, huge, vertically scaled servers, mm-hmm. and they were like annihilating it. But then slowly over time, and those are like very, very expensive machines. That like poor college kids coming out of Stanford or these top end universities would need funding to go after, uh, to, to get. But now like how cheap is AWS, right? We can have like distributed cash, uh, like content delivery networks in very reasonably, uh, priced ways to like shove media throughout the whole world overnight Mm -hmm. in today's age. So in contrast to like the previous, like very expensive monolithic servers of like the later, uh, earlier years, um, it kind of makes it uh that more people can be at the table competing right you see how it like, shifts like the ratio of how yeah. important um resources are yeah so if ai gets very very good maybe we can like have a five sentence injection into some prompt and it can develop this awesome software application for this new social media platform mm-hmm. or it can develop this niche to optimize your business or optimize a businesses um workflows in this way right and so I view it as like, I don't know, it's a, it's a tug of war. If there's gonna be pros and cons to this AI, if it does take our jobs, I feel like it also have like, if it if the negative impact of it taking my job and it, it being that capable, that probably means I can use that same AI tool for my own advantageous re, uh, ways or like ideas to serve uh, problems, solve problems amongst the world and earn a living, right? So yeah. those are some things that I tell myself <laughs> to be able to go to bed at night.
0: Absolutely, I. I do as well because I don't like to think about the possibility of myself <laughs> getting replaced with a robot. I don't think anyone does. Um, everyone likes to feel like they're valuable and that they're a contributor and honestly I think humans probably at least hopefully during our lifetime will always be able to contribute in more meaningful ways than machines hopefully can. And I maybe that's just <laughs> maybe that's just my me being naive, uh, but Yeah, no, I I honestly believe it. And I'm glad that you kind of went there because I've I've talked to a lot of people about this topic and a lot of and not a lot of people kind of play it out as far as I do. And I'm glad that you did, of just like, okay, let's what what does the world look like if my job does get taken over by AI, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that the big question that I that I linked to it, because I was thinking the same thing as you, like, okay, if AI gets so advanced that it can write like code just insanely good what's preventing me from like typing in chat gpt prompt and be like okay build me aws and start selling it to everyone and it like just the the way that this like proprietary aspect of ai is going to play out is going to be very interesting to me right because like already open ai has kind of flipped on a lot of the cores that they started out with like open source which they're not anymore and, mm-hmm. and like all these things right and so it's like i think that if it's one if it's a small concentrated group, which, I mean, that's kind of the way things seem to happen in America. But it's like, if it's one concentrated group that controls all of this and like really um, uh, like just sets the scene for this, it, it's hard for me to imagine a world where they don't just absolutely destroy everyone. Mm-hmm. But it's like, that's, I don't even know if that's a possibility worth considering. But it's like, let's consider the other possibility, where it's like, open source community of AI is really strong. You and I lose our job to a machine learning model. Um, but we can leverage that same machine learning model or one that's very similar, that's open source to do the same thing that replaced us and be like, OK, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to become a founder. And <laughs> hopefully, I mean, this maybe this will even be a better life for me. You know, it's like I don't even I don't have to write code anymore. I can just come up with ideas all day and be like, maybe this can make me a lot of money. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm really glad that you went there because I think about that kind of like doomsday scenario a lot <laughs> yeah. and i'm and i'm very curious how I, I would respond and how the industry would respond right of just like I, to me it always comes back down to like what's the what is the value of work you know like what what is it that we like contribute and right now it's code right but like in the future might be something different mm-hmm.
1: yeah as like economies have become more more efficient over time or like more productive we've seen like trade-offs of people focusing on like uh the means to survive and then also like I don't know entertainment, luxurious things, right? Um, like, if during the Great Great Depression, like it's probably very hard to make a living as like a Comedian. entertainer. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. But like as uh, the economies get more efficient, economy good. I feel like you have more opportunities to become a creator or entertainer. Yeah. Uh, also, the two edge sword of that, like we see in the creator world that it's so competitive. Like the top 1% of 1% make like all of the money. Mm-hmm. So that might be also a, an argument against that is because like with technology and being scaled out so well that like Mr. Beast is going to take all the revenue for, <laughs> for you, you see where I'm going to there. Yeah, for um, sure. but a couple of small details with AI that I feel like I'm trying to like pay particularly close attention to is uh, yeah. How does it affect my life? Like what am I doing and what can it replace in my day to day? But also like a couple weaknesses and strengths that it has like what what are the strengths and weaknesses of the models that are out today Hmm. like for sure well like to train open ai didn't they spend like a huge like millions and millions like of dollars and just electricity cost let alone the gpus to train the models um so it does take like significant resources uh to train the models and it also takes time to train the models so that means like there's like a delay as of today, there seems to be like a delay in the knowledge it has. Like, if you ask it about legacy, like relational database questions, it seems to be doing very well. I feel like I'm using it all the time. Like, how do you do this in Postgres? Or can you just write these uh, queries for me? And it does a great job. Like, it'll mess up all the time, mm-hmm. and I have to like guide it to the right answer very commonly. But I feel like it's written like for me in the past like couple months. It's written like eighty percent of all my database queries. That I've put to production, right? So, I'm appreciative of that because I don't like, I don't particularly love or enjoy writing. I get the idea. I want to do. I want to tell the computer to do to do what I want, but I don't want to like worry about all the syntax or nitty gritty details. Where I feel like AI is doing a good job of assisting me in my day to day life to uh, to yield what I want. Yeah. But knowing that, uh, like the more modern or like cutting edge stuff. It's not as knowledgeable on, right? Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's something where we can add value is making sure we're staying up to date with the latest technologies. Yeah. Um, But that's also on the premise that it's going to continue to be a slow learning curve for AI models to produce, uh, like, trained understanding of things on, right? Because one was was AI, one's like the cap for open AI is at 2021 that it doesn't know anything beyond that.
0: Oh, yeah yeah it was something like i think it's like september of 2021 or at least that's what they have right now although i've seen some people post things that it's like this seems to be more modern information or whatever but Mm -hmm. yeah i I think that is the cap
1: yeah so paying attention to that closely like when like is are the models gonna be be able to like train and be quick enough to uh stay super relevant if so Mm -hmm. that's something to be aware of maybe it doesn't add as much value to be super relevant on like the latest database trend or latest whatever technology right yeah but if this uh, case seems to be true and persisting to be true, then maybe humans can add value in engineering with uh, just knowing, like, a hey, this new AWS infrastructure can
0: help us out. We should use this, right? Yeah. So that's something to be aware of. A 100%. Yeah, I really liked what you said there. Like, um, in my mind, it's almost just like a faster transmission from like idea to like actual implementation, which is super powerful. Because I, I do the same thing. Like, I use chat gpt constantly to be like give me this mock data or like why isn't this query like what's the mm-hmm. syntax error in this like you know it's just like so quick to just like and that i totally do agree with right like i am a huge advocate for a world where it's like as soon as i have the idea it's like i can like create it almost instantly you That's know really and cool. i think that will be a super exciting world and one that i want to be a part of but i, I think that you're totally right that it's like yeah <laughs> uh I've seen, I've heard a lot of comparisons to like what chat GPT is like. And one that I really like recently is like a very mediocre, like assistant or or I don't know. Right. Like it it requires a tons of guidance. Like it would be almost like if you got like someone new started on your work and you're like, Mm -hmm. they were like a ton of people, but like they didn't really like they had to get super direct action of like yes or no, like constantly. Right. And that's what it's like right now. It would be cool once it gets to a place where it's not only just like analyzing information from the internet and like kind of aggregating it to determine what's right but where i can actually like determine like okay using like i'm kind of built on these like so, solid like logic like <laughs> like uh foundation right and i use that to determine like the authentic the authenticity of data or like whether it's going to actually work instead mm-hmm. of like this seems to be group consensus so we're going to go with that right <laughs> yeah do you use do you use copilot yeah no i do do you like it
1: not as much as ChatGPT. What are you coding in right now? What language? PHP. PHP. So it's probably like really knowledgeable on PHP, right? For sure. A lot of good content on the internet that it can train upon. Yeah. I don't like Copilot. I know okay. it's gonna be super good, and I feel like later versions I'm gonna love it. But like right now, I feel like it's just more of a like I use IntelliJ in Java, and mm-hmm. IntelliJ has some good autofill. That I've been working with for like five years every day of my life mm-hmm. and so I'm just so used to like tabbing or like auto feeling when I need it but right now like I feel like Copilot is such a frustrating
0: oh for sure it, it predicts and fills in things that messes up all the time that I feel like takes more work for me to go clean up a hundred percent. Just yesterday, I was working on something and it kept on like auto completing like something that was like totally wrong. Yeah. And I was like losing my mind. I was, I mean, obviously I can just toggle it off, but I was just like, dude, just do it right, please, gosh. Yeah, you I know. Had, I had to turn it off. <laughs> but I
1: love ChatGPT. One thing I love too is like, okay, in in the Java world, the Spring world, you have like all these annotations where you do like an at this like mm-hmm. at ignore. So if this object's being serialized to a request, like don't bring this object in, right? Yeah. Uh, and I needed to like go at this like huge Java object with a bunch of these annotations to do what I wanted with the database and serialization. But I was just like ChatGPT, take this huge blob of text from this Java code and slap in these right annotations where I want them. Mm-hmm. And it took forever. It took like I feel like a couple minutes to like fully do all of it. Yeah. But I just like sent it on its task and then went and worked on something else while I was working. So and nice. I love that so much. Yeah. Like tedious, like put a comma here, put this at sign here. Yeah. I feel
0: like it does a great job just doing like this grunt work that I do not want to do ever. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, even just yesterday, I was like, I had this huge query, like, probably like 40, 40, fields or something is returning. I was like, please create like mock data for this. And it was, I was like, this is the best thing ever, you know, because that was the worst thing ever. Cause it's kind of, I'm kind of like waiting on someone else to give me back on something. So like, I want to use mock data in the meantime, and it's mm-hmm. right on the head for that. But along those lines, we, uh, we're seeing great
1: benefits in our company uh, from like a, not just like adding commas to our code here or there, but we're seeing like great speed up, in our development cycles for some of our machine learning models, hmm. like we have a really smart uh, data science group, and like we're happy with them; they're doing great jobs. Nice. Uh, but I think we spent like we spent millions of dollars and tons of engineering time and resources from the business trying to figure out how to like get that. Remember, I mentioned that classify yeah. model up and running uh, really well, and it seems like t- tons of companies are trying to solve this problem, and I feel like everybody's doing an okay job at, but nobody is good. I wouldn't even say good is where people are at. Hmm. But I feel like as of recently with OpenAI, we've we've gotten to like good and we're getting to great. I feel like we're getting pretty significant uh, accuracy with it. But for the longest time we had, um, well, we started off with like some if conditions, like just tons of if, if conditions in this application of, of Java to figure out what's the right HS code, right? And it, said, it, would think, it would like look for keywords, like if it says automotive part, it's probably gonna be this chapter. Mm-hmm. And then we would look for colors and add the, the right, you get, you get the idea. And there's tons of like logical if statements, and there's limits to how much a code base can have. And that's why, why AI gets so powerful, is because like you're, you're capped, like nobody can reasonably manage more than like 10,000 complexities or like if statements or conditions in a code base. like that seems like there's like a hard cap and so if you can remove those if statements uh or remove those like logical uh complexities and put them into a neural network that can just automatically train and understand those it's much less code for the humans to manage and code right Mm -hmm. like we we just had um tesla have the shareholders meeting where no longer is their autopilot or like a full self-driving code have any like hard-coded if statements like if Hmm. you see a stop stop sign stop it's doing it all through neural networks
0: wow uh it's kind of scary a little bit but (laughs) yeah right yeah there's like no hard line like don't ever do this but it's just like oh the neural networks have it just like do what you think is right like if the kid needs to get run over you know just zoom over i'm just kidding (laughs) 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 no no i see what you're saying sorry um okay what was train
1: of thought um so the idea is we're we were trying to like reduce this uh, amount of code we're managing to like produce the right HS code, right? So at the beginning it was like hard coded if statements, and then we started getting some AI introduced where if the like Java code that was like hyper accurate but had a small scope of knowledge mm-hmm. didn't have a like a high confidence in its score that it was giving the right result, then we would just dump it to the AI model, right? Mm. But the AI model was like training, it was like very spotty. But it was like our, our catch all. Like, if we didn't have a high certainty that we've seen this type of HS code situation, mm-hmm. then let's revert back and give us like a 60% accuracy from the AI model that has a breadth of knowledge but no depth of knowledge, right? Nice. But then we got some better uh, models in there. We got some hired some more resources for our, for our machine learning team, got some better talent there. And it seems like we were getting from like 60% to like 70%. And so it was going well, but we were spending, like, lots of money. It was hard. Commonly, like, our model would get new data. And, like, we have lots of, like, uh, auto part companies that need our code to be very accurate for auto parts. But when we train new AI data on, like, I don't know, like, f- food, it would lose knowledge or wouldn't be as accurate in auto parts. Or our model would drift to a new... Proficiency and lose mm. like accuracy that we actually needed for sure, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of a painful, very costly experience. But then out of nowhere, OpenAI comes out and seems like just changes the world in a in a, in a positive way, from my perspective. But overnight, we basically got like the best machine learning model or like, AI model ever written, to my understanding, uh, that was just readily available to like everybody. And it was as simple as this if you can command an api call like a post and if you can uh, somehow figure out a csv you could leverage like the world's most powerful ai model in a very cheap way with like those two things commanding oh. a csv and commanding an api call and so we did that we were able to like just drop tons and tons of code that we were trying to manage and have spent millions of dollars on we were able just to like delete it and leverage OpenAI. We send it a CSV of classifications that we feel like are important. It trains on it, and then we can call APIs throughout the day and say, "Hey, OpenAI, what's this classification?" We still need and rely a lot of our on our like if statements and hard coded like boundaries. Like we're not not to the point where we can get rid of that because that code is like so good, especially for our customer sets. Mm-hmm. But this OpenAI model is producing way better results than any of our machine learning companies or machine learning projects could by themselves mm-hmm. and at a fraction of the cost. Like like thousands times cheaper uh, in development time, right? And so it's pretty profound. It's impacting our our company in a significant way. But I feel like even like some of my, like my parents who have never coded in their life could figure out in a week or two how to command that capability, right? And have significant impact on many different industries or problems. So that's a uh, that's not that's like significant. That's not trivial.
0: I think that covers most of the questions I wanted to ask about uh artificial intelligence. Are the are there any others that you want to, to to touch on before we kinda wrap up, Kendall? <sighs> no man, that's it. I think, think we've exhausted it. <laughs> yeah, that was happen. a good that was a good session. I, I really liked that yeah that last part specifically about how you said that, you know, like it, it really did just change the dynamic of the world so drastically when that came out. Uh, yeah. Partially because it's so cheap and just available and it's uh, yeah. I, I hope most people kind of see it as a tool rather than like this big looming tidal wave that's about to like crush and destroy everyone, you know, cause I, I think that's what it is. I think that's what open AI intended it as. I think everything I've heard from Sam Altman has just been like, this isn't the end all be all. In fact, it's very far from it. And I hope that people don't, like just take this and like see only see doom you know he's like i he's like with this like with open ai like i see a world where like a lot of the problems that we have now are like solved you know like there there is a lot more like wealth like equality throughout the world and like people are just like better and more capable at doing their jobs and like everything is just like more efficient you know and that i I agree. And I hope that that's the future that like where we're headed, you know, it's like a, a hopeful one rather than a, a despairing one. And
1: yeah, let's be positive.
0: <laughs> for sure. It's gonna be okay. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for coming on the podcast today, Kendall. You touched on so many good topics. And I think that a lot of our listeners will really appreciate a lot of the stuff you said. Good stuff. Thanks for having me.